Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called Start with the Three. It's based upon the lectionary readings for May 27, 2018. I was watering plants at my patio a few weeks ago when my neighbor's son, an eighth grader, peeked over the fence and started telling me about his recent bar mitzvah celebration. After we chatted for a bit about the party, the guests, and the awesome gifts he'd received, he asked, Your family is Christian, right? Yes, I said, born and raised. Why do Christians believe in three gods? His tone was solemn and earnest. We don't. Actually, we believe in the same God you do, I replied, just differently. This was a lame answer, I knew, but I hoped sort of desperately that it would suffice. It didn't. No, he pressed on. I mean, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost thing. That's Christian, isn't it? He looked at me with a truly puzzled expression. I don't get it. Neither do I, honey, was what I wanted to say. But he looked so genuinely bewildered that I sighed and fumbled my way through all the inadequate explanations I'd heard as a kid. God is sort of like water. Water exists in three states, right? Liquid, solid, gas. God's like that. Or like an egg. The shell, the egg white, and the yolk. Three parts, one egg. Or um, three-leaf clover. Or a tree. The roots, the trunk, and the branches. But they make up one tree, right? Or, or a triangle. The look of confusion on his face only deepened. For a minute, his politeness warred with his curiosity. But then he blurted out the inevitable. What's the point of believing in three gods? Why three? What difference does it make? This week, we celebrate Trinity Sunday and try, for better or for worse, to contemplate the very question my neighbor asked me. What difference does three make? It's a tough question, particularly if we take the Holy Trinity for granted. Of course we believe in the three in one, and yet find our belief irrelevant to daily life. While most of the festivals on our liturgical calendar celebrate dramatic and suspenseful events— Jesus' birth, the resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Trinity Sunday lacks glitter. It's abstract and boring. Just water, eggs, shamrocks, trees, and triangles. Who cares? In The Divine Dance, a beautiful and transformative book on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, Franciscan priest and theologian Richard Rohr argues that caring comes from starting in the right place. Don't start with the one and try to make it into three, he writes, but start with the three and see that this is the deepest nature of the one. Start with the three and see that this is the deepest nature of the one. What would it look like to do this? What would we discover about God's character, God's personality, God's priorities, and God's reality if we saw threeness as the very ground and essence of God's being? First, we'd see that God is not rigid and immutable. God does not exist in stasis. Rather, God's self is dynamic and fluid. God moves. Or to use Roar's language again, God flows and God is flow. God dances and God is dance. Whether we learn to tolerate the surprise and discomfort of divine fluidity or not, we worship a God who is impossible to pin down, a God who is mysterious beyond reckoning. Expand, do not contract God, Ken Stork writes in his poem, The Holy Trinity, for God is the great iconoclast. Secondly, we see that God is diverse. If God exists in three persons, then each person has his or her own way of embodying and expressing goodness, beauty, love, and righteousness. As Rohr puts it, the Trinity affirms that there is an intrinsic plurality to goodness. Goodness isn't sameness, he writes in the Divine Dance. Goodness, to be goodness, needs contrast and tension, not perfect uniformity. If God can incarnate goodness through contrast and tension, then why can't we? Why won't we? Why do we fear difference so much? when difference lies at the very heart of God. Thirdly, we see that God is not a loner. 
Or as Lutheran minister Nadia Botswelber puts it, this is not a me God, but a we God. God from the beginning is not God as bad math, but God as community. It's one thing to say that God values community, or thinks that community is good for us, or hopes it will build our own. It's altogether another to say that God is community, that God is relationship, intimacy, connection, and communion. If God is both plural and interactive at God's very heart, if three is the deepest nature of the one, then what are we doing when we isolate ourselves from each other, when we decide to go it alone, when we hold ourselves back from intimacy and connection and thus deny ourselves the expression and experience of God's own self? If Rohr is right and that the Trinity really is much more than a bit of dusty doctrine the early church fought over, then we dare not take lightly the life-changing power of the communal. God is relationship, and it is only in relationship that we experience the fullness of God. And lastly, <clears throat> we see that God is hospitality. In the 15th century, Russian iconographer Andrei Rublev created the Hospitality of Abraham, also known as the Trinity, one of the most well-known and well-loved icons in Christendom. In it, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, depicted as the three angels who appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, sit around a table sharing food and drink. Their faces are nearly identical, but they're dressed in different colors. The Father wears gold, the Son blue, and the Spirit green. The Father gazes at the Son. The Son gazes back at the Father, but gestures towards the Spirit. The Spirit gazes at the Father, but points toward the Son with one hand and opens up the circle with the other, making room for others to join the sacred meal. As a whole, the icon exudes adoration and intimacy. Clearly, the three persons around the table love and enjoy each other. But it also exudes openness. There is space at the table for the viewer of the icon, for me, for us, as if to say, the point of the great three-in-one is not exclusivity. God is not a middle school clique, but rather radical hospitality. The point of the three is always to add one more, to extend the invitation, to make the holy table more expansive and more welcoming. In fact, the deeper the love between the three grows, the roomier the table grows. The closer we draw to the adoration of the three, the wider and more hospitable our hearts grow towards the world. As I stumbled my way through a Trinity lesson that day on my patio, I didn't get far beyond trees and triangles, but I still walked away grateful for my inquisitive young neighbor's question. What difference does three make? As we celebrate the Trinity this week, let's not make the mistake of ignoring the question. It's an excellent one, and the answer is well worth exploring. Three makes all the difference in the world. For books this week, Dan reviews Projects and Ephemeral Works by Andy Goldsworthy. About a mile from my house at Stanford University, there's a work by the British environmental artist Andy Goldsworthy called Stone River. It's a 320-foot sculpture that was constructed of sandstone from Stanford buildings that were destroyed in the 1906 and 1989 earthquakes. A university news article described the work when it was unveiled. Stone River is a wall-like serpentine sculpture set in about three acres of land to the northeast of the Iris and B. Gerald Cantor Center for Visual Arts. It is about three and a half feet high and about four feet wide at its base. It is made of more than 6,500 stones, including about 700 triangular coping stones weighing between 20 and 50 pounds each that top the sculpture. Each coping stone was individually shaped at a different angle to fit the wall precisely. The total weight of the piece is about 128 tons. I first encountered Andy Goldsworthy at about the same time the Stone River was built, in the documentary film about Goldsworthy called Rivers and Tides, Working with Time. The film is a little dated now, but still worth watching. A new documentary about Goldsworthy called Leaning into the Wind was due for release this past March 2018. 
There is a world beyond which words cannot describe, says Goldsworthy in the 2001 film. With that, he tosses a mud ball made of dark red crushed iron stone into a river for an explosion of color. What once was solid is now liquid, the immobile stone now part of the flowing river. Ice, twigs, thorns, dandelions, rocks, sand, sheep wool, snaking ribbons of braided leaves. From the North Pole to Canada, Japan, Australia, and New York, all of his work, most of which is ephemeral because that same nature will destroy it, is made from the elements of nature, sculpted in nature and is about nature. But words cannot begin to unpack the haunting beauty and evocative power of his creations. The two massive coffee table books reviewed here were made concurrently by Goldsworthy and are considered a single work by him. They should not be confused with the similar title of his 2011 book, The Andy Goldsworthy Project. The Dust Jacket of Ephemeral summarizes the themes of Goldsworthy's work. Materiality, temporality, growth, vitality, permanence, decay, chance, labor, and memory. Ephemeral gathers photographs of what Goldsworthy considers his 200 most significant small or ephemeral works that he created between 2004 <coughs> and 2014. The companion volume Projects contains photos of over 40 larger-scale works, with about six to eight pages devoted to the creation and completion of each work. What's amazing is both volumes, in both volumes, is how the photographs themselves are works of art. The Projects volume also contains a lengthy 200... 2016 interview with Goldsworthy's current partner, the art historian Tina Fisk. His first wife died in a car accident. Throughout his prolific career, there has been what he calls his obsession with a paradox, the permanence of temporary objects and the temporality of permanent objects. For a longer critical review of these two books and the decades of Goldsworthy's work, see Andrew Motion, The Pencil of Nature. New York Times Book Review, February 8, 2018. For films this week, Dan reviews Slack Bay. In the first few minutes of his dark and absurdist comedy, Bruno Dumont introduces his three plot lines. The movie is set in 1910 in a coastal town near Calais. There's a gritty Brewfort villagers who gathers oysters and who look downright Dickinsonian in their grinding poverty. There's the eccentric and aristocratic Van Pettigems who have come to their hillside villa, the Tyhonium, built in the Egyptian style for their annual family vacation. Between these two are the bungling police duo of Chief Inspector Mackin, an obese man who makes the beach sand creak with every step, and his sidekick Malfoy, who is half his size. Think Laurel and Hardy, complete with suits and bowler hats. What ties his families together is a mystery, that there have been tourists who have gone missing, and a teenage romance between Malut Brufort and the gender-bending Billy Van Pettigem. Overt class conflict is only one of the themes at work here. There's a nihilistic tinge to both families in their transgression of two of humanity's deepest taboos. At least three times in the film, another Van, Van Pettigam cousin repeats in heavily accented English what might be Dumont's main message. We know what to do, but we do not do. Dan watched this film after seeing it listed as a hidden gem on Netflix streaming in French with English subtitles. And finally, for poems this week, Footnote to All Prayers by C.S. Lewis. He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow, when I attempt the ineffable name, murmuring thou, and dream of Fadian fancies, and embrace in heart symbols I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus always taken at their word all prayers blaspheme, worshipping with frail images a folklore dream, and all men in their praying self-deceived address the coinage of their un own unquiet thoughts. Unless thou in magnetic mercy to thyself divert our arrows, aimed unskillfully beyond desert, 
And all men are idolaters, crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. Take not, O Lord, our literal sense. Lord, in thy great unbroken speech, our limping metaphor, translate. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May 27th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.